This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website, www.anchorchurch.com.au. Thank you, Bree. Good morning, Anchor Church. How are we? Good. Great to see you here today. Good effort for making it here in the rain. And uh, thank you for everyone who is watching online. You guys have chosen to watch online this morning. And I don't know how far you had to travel today, but there was probably some wisdom in that given the condition of the roads at the moment. But for us in the room, uh, it's good to be here today. I, as Bree mentioned, we're continuing our series, Encounters with the King. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the topic of greatness and leadership. So why don't you join me as I lead us in prayer? Father, we thank you that uh, your word is relevant. We thank you that the things that Jesus said that have been recorded for us have profound impact in our world and in our lives, and not just for Sunday, but also for what we do Monday to Friday, nine to five, for our weeks, for all of our lives. And so, Father, we want to come before you this morning in your word and humbly submit our lives to you and pray that you'd speak to us by your spirit. And I pray now, Father, that you would use me as a servant to your people, that these words would be a blessing, would strengthen, would make our church family more like Jesus. So, Father, we come with a deep sense of expectancy that you will speak now. We ask that you would do it, transform our lives. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. I wonder how you would answer this question. How would you define Greatness, what is great? As you look around and think about the people in our world, the people in your lives, what are the measures that we use to describe someone as being great? Now, for the most part, if we're honest, we look at our world, greatness is probably um, a, a word that's used to describe solely male elite athletes. Right? That's probably the, the best description of great in our world. And so a few years ago, Nike decided to try and deconstruct that idea of greatness, and they launched a campaign called Find Greatness. And the whole idea was to show us that greatness doesn't just exist on the courts of Wimbledon and at the major sporting fields of our world, but greatness exists in the slums of Africa and India, and greatness exists in every part of our world that you can imagine. So they ran this beautiful campaign trying to redefine and reimagine what greatness is and how successful they were, who will ever know. But greatness, I think um, if we all think of people in our lives, leaders in our lives who have perhaps embodied a sense of greatness or completely lack that, I think of some of the managers and bosses that I've had in my life. I still remember the moment that um, when I was stacking shelves in a supermarket in high school, uh, what a wonderful job that was to, to stack shelves. And uh, look, to be fair, when you put a bunch of young teenage boys together with a teenage manager who's only a few years older than them, you're bound for all sorts of chaos to happen at the supermarket. And one of the things was stock loss that just happened to get cut open and then consumed by the people who were working on the floor. And so there was just this inordinate amount of Tim Tams that just got damaged every time a box was opened and left out the back and we all ate it until one day um, because of stock loss the big managers came in and said there's a problem here with staff stealing and eating food something needs to be done about it and the manager who just so happened to be a part of the culture of stealing and eating food 
fired one of the employees. And we all were shocked. We were like, what just happened? Here is a guy who, who, who steals stock just like everyone else. And now he is firing staff for doing the very thing that he himself is doing. And it was a stark sense of hypocrisy. And that moment created a deep division between management and staff at that point, as you would expect. But I also remember my, uh, another boss that I had, my old pastor, Ray Galea, who um, for many years, I watched him take in young leaders, young pastors, and just round the rough edges of us. And Ray would sit in our offices and, and, and chat with us and mentor us and disciple us and shape us with all of his intuitive, I don't even know how he did it, like he would come in and he would have a hard word for you, but you would leave feeling like entirely loved and, and a better person for it. He was a leader who took people and made them better. He invested in us, not just because we were his staff and had output in his organization. He invested in us as people, as disciples of Jesus. We, we've all got experiences of great managers and bosses and of horrible managers and bosses. How do we define greatness? Well, to that question, Jesus gives a very countercultural answer. So come back to me with, uh, with me to Luke chapter 22, verse 24. We see the disciples here. This is part of uh, what is known as the upper room discourse. As Jesus is about to head out to Jerusalem to be killed and to give his life, the disciples hang out in an upper room. It's the, it's the moment when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. It's that moment. And in this moment, he has just told his disciples that he's about to go to the cross. And then in verse 24, it says this, a dispute arose among the disciples as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. You know, the, um, the hashtag, hashtag G-O-A-T, GOAT, has been floating around a lot. It gets tossed around a fair bit. In fact, it's thrown out there on nine million Instagram posts have the hashtag GOAT next to it. Now, most of them are male athletes. MJ, Federer, Messi, Michael Jackson is thrown in there a bit. Some of them, to be fair, are actual pictures of actual goats, cute little goats, right? But, but most of them are male sporting athletes. There's very few females that are represented there, but Brittany is there at the moment. She's definitely featuring in the greatest of all time hashtags at the moment. But the best part about that hashtag is when people put it on their own posts, right? They put hashtag greatest of all time on their own posts. Some of these people only have a few hundred followers, and they've got hashtag goat on their profile. You imagine this scene in the upper room playing out in a social media world, right? You, you imagine it. Peter is sitting there, and uh, he's at the Lord's Supper, the long table, and he takes his phone out, and he says, like, hey, Jesus, come, 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 and he snaps a selfie, and he's like, puts it on his Instagram. The handle is at the real underscore Peter. And uh, he, he posts there with the caption of him and Jesus, hanging with the homies, the Messiah, and the hashtag greatest of all time. And then Matthew, he sees what Peter has posted, and he jumps on his Instagram, and his handle is at the former tax collector, and he tags all of the other disciples. He's like, guys, you see this fool, greatest of all time? 
And then John jumps on, and his handle is at uh, John underscore the disciple Jesus loves. And he's like, yo, 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 you see my handle? The one that he loves? I am the greatest. And this like massive debate breaks out because that's what happens on social media. Right? That's where all of the outrage and the dispute happens in our world on social media. And so it plays out, and these disciples are arguing with themselves about which of them is the greatest. Jesus has literally just told them that he's going to die, that he's going to the cross, and here they are arguing about which one of them is the best. Talk about insensitivity, right? These guys are low on the emotional IQ quotient. It would be a little bit like arguing over the inheritance at the hospital bed while Nana's still breathing, right? That's the equivalent of what's happening here. They are arguing over which one of them is the greatest. It's not the first time it's happened. The first time Jesus alerted his disciples to the fact that he was going to the cross and going to die in Luke chapter 9, the same events happened. The disciples began to jostle and argue and fight for preeminence. They began to thrust self-promotion into the conversation. It seems that there's a real sense of competitiveness here amongst the disciples. And my question is, why is that the case? The two times that Jesus talks about the kingdom coming in and his trajectory, the disciples begin to argue about leadership and great. Why is that? I want to suggest to you that they have been discipled and educated. They've been given a script for leadership and greatness that they've inherited as a part of the cultural water that they swim in. But Jesus, in his brilliance, takes this, not with offense, like I think most of us would, but he takes this as a teachable moment. And he begins to show his disciples something about greatness. He wants them to reimagine what greatness and leadership is. Have a look at what he says to them in verse 25. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. Now, the first century was a a culture of social stratification. There was a hierarchy. There was a rank. and, And wherever you sat in that hierarchy was your social status position. It was pretty much locked in. You couldn't climb up. You generally wouldn't go lower unless you fell into some form of financial ruin. It's much like the outdated and much hated caste system in India. There is just this sense of rank and order and stratification in society. Many leaders in the first century postured themselves as gods to be worshipped by the people. And then any form of um, rebellion or speaking against was often met with brutality. Leadership was unpredictable. It was self-serving. And here Jesus says the, the kings of the Gentiles, they lord it over their people. They strut their power. They leverage their influence for their own purposes. And he says there that those who are in positions of leadership and authority call themselves benefactors. What is that? Benefactors. This is a class of people who were the social elites of their day, people in positions of leadership, authority, and power. And they called themselves this term benefactors. It means friends of the people. And it literally has an air of irony about it because the way that it played out was because they were in power, because they had authority, because they had influence, because they had decision-making ability, because they had money, they were able to make decisions that blessed the people. 
And therefore, the people in her culture, shame and honor culture, owed them honor. And when they couldn't owe them financial repayment and reciprocity, they had to give them verbal honor or life honor. And here in this culture, these leaders would lead with power and authority and expect the people below them to honor them with everything, sometimes even to the degree of worshiping them as gods. In the first century, the people at the top were the ones who were honored, and everyone below them were expected to push that honor up the social ladder. It's a culture of self-promotion. Now, is that any different from our culture today? Sure, we might use different titles and we have different tools to achieve the purposes. We've just taken self-promotion and social validation and we've shoved it into the online space. We don't need to look very far in our world to see examples of this type of leadership. Our world is full of ruthless dictators, of tyrants, of um, corrupt politicians. Every week we open our our social media feeds and our news feeds and our newspapers and read of leaders who have served themselves in their positions of leadership. But what about the church? What are we like? We have our own Christian subculture versions of this, do we not? We put Christian leaders on pedestals and we give them a sense of honor. Why is it that we all sign up for the conferences when the big name speakers turn up And when they don't have big name speakers, no one turns up. Literally, I was reading uh, a few weeks ago, James Wong and I are reading a book as part of his development, uh, this book called um, Imperfect Pastor, that's it. And he tells a story of this conference that wanted to kind of buck the trend of just putting big name, big mega church pastors on their platform. And so they, they put on their conference bill all of these like no names. No one signed up for the conference. The conference nearly went bankrupt, and the next year they reversed the trend because no one turns up. Why is it that we buy the books of people who have big churches? Because in our mindset, big equals great. Big equals successful. Lots of people in the room is automatic success. Now, to be fair, many of the authors and many of the conference speakers are incredibly gifted leaders, servant-hearted, humble leaders, but we buy into the same narrative in our little Christian subculture. In our world, greatness is about power, is about position, is about influence, and is about social hierarchy and pecking order. Now, if that's the world that the disciples lived in, if that's the the ocean that they swam in, It seems that they've been discipled by that culture. It seems like they've been captivated by this script of what leadership looks like. They've been schooled by it. And their apprenticeship to Jesus is about them unlearning the ways of the world, unlearning the narrative and the script and the vision of greatness and leadership and learning the way of Jesus. And we too are naive to think that the vision and tone of leadership and greatness in our day doesn't affect us. It does. And so our apprenticeship to Jesus, our discipleship to Jesus requires us to live like Jesus. At at Anchor, we have a definition of what a disciple is. Disciple is someone who is learning to love and live like Jesus. Someone who is learning to love and live like Jesus, including people who are learning to lead 
like Jesus led. That's what it means. And so Jesus wants to help us reimagine what greatness and leadership is all about. Have a look at what he says here in verse 26. But you are not to be like that. He says, you see the example of leadership in our world. Don't be like that. But he doesn't just give them a prohibition of a type of leadership. He wants them to have a new vision of what leadership and greatness could look like, a whole new paradigm. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. The first century is almost the exact opposite of our culture today. In the 21st century, we value youth. We value young people. In fact, we almost worship our children in the 21st century. And our elderly, well, unless you're a part of an islander or Asian or Middle Eastern culture, Anglo-Western people tend to devalue the elderly. We put them in nursing homes. There's a whole thing about euthanasia, right? Elderly is seen as inferior, and young in our culture is honored. But in the first century, it was the exact opposite. In the first century, they honored their elderly. They honored their elders, and they sacrificed their children on the altar of the gods. But here in the first century, when Jesus says, instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, he's saying the greatest is like the person at the bottom of the pecking order, the least valued in our society. Those who rule are to be like the servants and slaves. What does Jesus mean when he says that? You should be like the youngest. You should be like the servants. He's not, he's not saying, you know, dress in a play school t-shirt and, and act like a child. He's not saying go and sell yourself into slavery. He's saying that your attitude and your posture and your demeanor and your disposition ought to be like a person of low position, like the youngest, like the servants. Now, if we're honest, as we read that, we think that's actually quite uncomfortable for us. That begins to deconstruct our inbuilt sense of whatever we think leadership is. And even in our best moments, we might project outwardly that we're humble and leadership's all about service, but inwardly, our hearts are craving significance and influence and greatness. And these words like Jesus can often cut to the heart of our desires, our ambitions, our motives. In Jesus' dictionary, greatness is service. That's what he means. Greatness is service. You know, this week I was watching the movie Troy, you know, the one with Eric Banner and Brad Pitt. Classic movie, and... Uh, towards the end of the movie, Greece goes to battle against Troy, and they're in battle really for Agamemnon's personal ambition and his desire to take over the world. And, and there's this scene where um, Odysseus is trying to convince Achilles to join the rest of the, the, the Greek troops because they just got smashed by Troy's army. And they sit down, and there's this exchange that happens. And Achilles says to Odysseus, he says, of all the kings of Greece, I respect you the most. But in this war, you're a servant. You're a servant to Agamemnon. And Odysseus replies to him, he says, sometimes in order to lead, you've got to serve. Sometimes in order to lead, you've got to serve. And I hope at some point, Achilles, you will understand that. Now, Jesus would agree. 
he would just change sometimes to always. In fact, if you want to lead, always it's about service. Have a look at what he says in verse 27. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Jesus takes a very common illustration, metaphor of the table. And the person at the table is the the guest, the homeowner, and the people serving at the table are the household servants. Now, we could even translate that culturally for us. In, In the hospitality world, if you go to a fancy restaurant, you are made to feel like you are incredible, that you're way richer than what you really are. They make you, they, they call you sir and madam. They put you, the, the, the napkin on your lap. And I mean, it's incredible, right? And there is this distinct sense of importance of the person at the table. And the person who serves is there to make you feel big. And that's why we go back, right? That's why we go back to fancy restaurants because of that sense of feeling about, and because the food is also sometimes, most of the time, incredible, But Jesus uses this very common metaphor, this very common everyday life example of what greatness looks like. He said, of course, we all know that the person sitting at the table is the greatest. And then he says, but I am among you as one who serves. I am among you as one who serves. Jesus' example and vision of what leadership and greatness looks like is incarnational service. Now, the word incarnational just means enfleshment, embodied service. Jesus' vision for greatness is incarnational service. I am among you. I am with you. I am am embodied as a servant. You just hear echoes of like, Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, or echoes of Philippians 2, where he says, but Christ, who, who was very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be held onto, something to be grasped, but instead, he took on the nature of a servant, being born in human likeness. Jesus is the one who came low, You remember this occurred in the upper room discourse, right? Where where Jesus celebrates the Lord's Supper before he heads to the cross. And if that that is the context of this, you've got to remember that that there is another event that has recently just occurred in the disciples' minds that ought to back up the teaching that he's just given them there. As the disciples come into the room that day, there was no household servant to wash their feet. The first century, most people wore open sandals the roads were dusty, dirty. There was no sura. The, you know, the, the, the primary mode of transport was horseback or walking. And, and so the, the streets are disgustingly dirty places. So when you turn up to someone's house, they would wash your feet. But here in the, in the context of this story, there was no one there. The disciples go into the upper room. No one has washed their feet. They're all reclining at the table with their feet on the floor, pointing just at, the, just at the, the hips of the next disciple, and their feet stink, and Jesus does this incredible thing. He takes off his robe, and he wraps a towel around his waist, and he washes his disciples' feet. And the thing about that story that always puzzles me is why is it that no one else took it upon themselves to do the servant's task? That is because all of the disciples felt that that task was beneath them. To, to do that task 
was the most menial task of all of the tasks. The servant that washed the feet was like the lowest servant in the whole household. And it's Jesus who takes off his robe, wraps a towel around his waist, and washes their feet. You see, Jesus doesn't lead with a title. He leads with a towel. He leads as a servant. The incarnational service of Jesus is our example and model of what greatness and what leadership looks like. How did Jesus lead? Look at his life. He healed the sick. He cared for the poor. He cast demons out of those who were tormented and held in chains. He reached out and touched the leper, the one that no one else was willing to touch. He was the one who was willing to break social convention and talk with that woman at the well who had a shady history and past. Jesus is the one who is willing to be interrupted by children. But ultimately, Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the one who became obedient to death. The ultimate act of service is the cross. And Jesus served this world in the way that the world needed most. You think about what, what is the job that the slave, the servant does? It's the cleanup. It's the tidy up. It's the bits that no one else wants to do. Cleaning the house, cleaning the table. And Jesus comes as a servant to clean up the mess of this world, to clean up the mess and the brokenness and the sin and the dysfunction that exists in our lives. Get this, the king of the universe, the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father in all glory, stepped down off his throne, was born as a finite human, born as a baby, learned to walk, walked the dusty streets of Jerusalem, and then went to the cross and died for our sin to set us free. That is the ultimate act of service. That is the ultimate act of the person who's gone from the highest position of leadership and greatness ever to the lowest, the Roman cross. In a world where everyone is trying to climb up, Jesus is the one who comes down to serve us and to save us. Now, if you're here this morning and you wouldn't identify as a follower of Jesus, a Christian, now let me explain to you what faith in Jesus means. Faith in Jesus means letting Jesus serve you. You see, so often we're striving. We're striving to make ourselves worthy. We're striving to clean up the mess and the brokenness and the sin and dysfunction of our lives. And having faith in Jesus is about letting him serve you. So often it's pride that gets in our way. We think, no, I've got this. I don't need God in my life. I can fix this. I'm capable. I'm able. But faith looks like saying, actually, I need help. My life's a mess. I'm out of relationship with God and I have no way of getting back in. Faith looks like letting Jesus serve you. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're someone who says, yes, I'm a Christian, I believe, how do we live like this? What does it look like for us to, to embody this? And it has to be more than just sign up for the vacuum cleaning roster at church, right? That feels like the token 
application of this verse that we all grew up with. We have to have a better imagination for embodying this type of life, not just Sunday, this type of life of humble, embodied service. If you're in a position of leadership at your workplace or perhaps in your university, what does it look like to live like this? What does it look like for you not to have your workers work for you, but for you to work for your workers, to build them up, to help them succeed, to make them better, to invest in them as employees, to set them up for career growth? What, what, what does it look like in your uni context to do that, to add value to them? You know, the um, famous uh, author Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, they researched some of the, um, some of the most significant companies in the world that had um, incredible market breakthrough. And the very first characteristic that they saw that was evident in every single one of these companies is what they came to term level five leadership. Level five leadership. And the two things that they saw about level five leadership were these, humility and drivenness. Humility. Isn't it interesting that even secular leadership books can pick up on this principle? These were leaders who were willing to let their egos die, but ambitious for the vision of their companies, ambitious for the good of their employees. How do we get this pattern of greatness, of leadership into our collective consciousness? What does it look like for us? If you're a parent, what does it look like to serve your children? Now, I know what's going on in your head right now. You're like, that's all I do. That's, I spend all of my day serving my children. Constant, it's driving me crazy, and I'm exhausted by it. Because all I'm doing is helping them, serving them, looking after them, and it's constant, it's relentless, it's unending. But perhaps what would it look like for parents and I? say this as much to myself as I say it to every other parent in the room, what does it look like for us to steward our emotional health so that our responses to our kids are better than what they are at our worst moments? What would it look like to serve our kids in that way? What would it look like for those of you who are in positions of leadership here at Anchor, whether you're on staff here, whether you're a, um, a ministry director here at Anchor, a gospel community leader, a team leader, one of our kids' church leaders, what does it look like to embody this reality, this vision, this script of what leadership and greatness looks like? I want to suggest to you that it is quality of character, quality of character, a willingness to lift other people up, a willingness to go low that makes us great that sets us apart as leaders. You know the difference between institutional leadership and influential leadership? Right? Institutional leadership is leadership that comes on the basis of title, authority that comes on the basis of position, a manager, a boss, a CEO. They have authority and leadership because of the status and rank that they hold in their organization. Now sometimes they're brilliant leaders. Sometimes they're servant leaders, but they can have that position, influence, and leadership irrespective of the character of the quality of their life and their leadership. Influential leadership is different. Influential leadership is, is, is leadership and greatness that comes, authority that comes on the basis of character, on the basis of a life, on the basis of a, 
a way of leadership that has nothing to do with the title on your position description or the role or the rank that you have in your organization. So that's why Nelson Mandela was a world-class leader before he was ever given the title of president of South Africa. Why? Because he lived and embodied a vision of freedom almost like no other human in recent history that gave him authority and influence as a leader even as he lay a criminal in jail. And then even more so as the president of South Africa. It's leadership with influence. In order to lead like this, in order to have authority like this and influence like this, we need a radically different way of living and leading. We are people of downward mobility. In a world where everyone's trying to go up, we are people who go down. We are people who view others in our sphere of influence in our world, not as obstacles to climb over to achieve success, but as people to come under and lift up and serve. I think you will find that if you posture yourself with this vision of greatness and leadership, that you will have more leadership than you ever hoped to have, that you ever thought was possible, and it'll have nothing to do with your title, your rank, your position in your organization. It's a compelling vision. But put yourself in the shoes of the disciples for a moment. They've literally left everything to follow Jesus. Their expectation was when Jesus ushers in his kingdom, that they would be there at his right, at his left, that they would be given positions of power and influence and significance. So as, as Jesus cast his compelling vision for greatness and leadership, he sees the cogs ticking in the disciples' heads, saying, hang on a sec, Jesus, what does this mean for us? This is how he responds in verse 28. You, disciples, apprentices, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is an invitation to a seat of honor. That's what Jesus is giving them, saying, I'm inviting you into this kingdom. It's nothing like you thought it would be. And I'm giving you a seat of honor to eat and drink at my table. Right? To eat and drink at the king's table is where the generals and the rulers and the, the, the elites ate. Jesus said, I'm inviting you into that. But to get here, it looks like this version of greatness, not the one that you've inherited. You see, in the end, greatness actually isn't the issue. It's the definition that we attach to it. I think all of us yearn to live lives that are significant, to live lives that have elements of greatness to it. We want to achieve something of value in our world and in our lives. We want to be people who leave our worlds, our businesses, our families, our organizations in better places because of the fact that we were there. But the way that we do that is a countercultural way of Jesus a way of greatness, a way of leadership that looks like going down to the low places. You know, one of the ways that we can live this out, embody this, be incarnational servants, 
is to pick up on an age-old Christian practice called the practice of secrecy. You ever wondered why it is that whenever the footy players go to the hospitals and do hospital visits, the media just happen to be there? (gasps) Can you believe it? The roosters are turning up to the hospital and the media is there. Why is that? Because we want our deeds to be seen. We want them to be broadcast. And every single footy player that is there is posturing themselves as a brilliant, caring person, when in reality they're probably a bonehead with a, I don't know, that's probably not accurate of some of the footy players. Some of them are great people with good intentions. But a lot of it is just self-promotion. Have a look at the roosters. Look how good we are. Look how much we care for our community. And yet here are our footy players getting drunk and glassing women. Anyway, another sermon for another day. The point is, there is an ancient practice of Christian secrecy. And secrecy exists to discipline our longing for recognition. To discipline our longing to be the one who is in the spotlight. Secrecy. It rescues us in the church world of brag serving. What would it look like for us to practice the countercultural discipline of secrecy? To do something purely for the recognition of the Father. To serve for an audience of one. You know, I um, came across an interview with um, the entrepreneur, leader, thought provoking Simon Sinek, who, and I'm sure you all watched his video, right? When he talked about millennials in the workplace and mobile phones, how many of you went out to buy alarm clocks after that, that little, you know, right? You didn't. You all said you would, but, um, you know, I'm going to put my phone in the hallway and I'm going to sleep with a, a, an old-fashioned alarm clock in my house, right? He has written a book called Leaders Eat Last. And he tells a story of how they arrived at this title. He had a meeting as a part of what he does, consulting with some of the, the most significant positions of leadership in the world. He had a meeting with the general of the U.S. Marine Corps, General Flynn. And he said to General Flynn, what is it that makes the U.S. Marine Corps so great? And General Flynn replied, oh, that's easy. That's very easy. Officers eat last. Officers eat last. And so they took that and he changed the name of his book called Leaders Eat Light. That is the principle of servant leadership. Leadership that seeks to lift others up. Leadership that seeks to serve. Leadership that doesn't clamor after rank and title and position and authority because authority is like soap. The more you use it, the less you have. This is servant leadership. And it's the type of leadership that Jesus has modeled for us. He's served us no less than by dying in our place for our sins to set us free and has given us a compelling, rich vision to live into. And my prayer is that we as a church, as a community, will live that out, not just on Sundays, not just in our little safe Christian huddle, but figure out what it looks like by the power of the Spirit to do this in our nine to five. So let me pray for us, church, as we transition to worship. Father, we thank you. Thank you for Jesus who has served us Thank you that he came and and didn't come and leverage position and rank and title and authority, but came as a servant, became obedient to death and died in our place to set us free. And we know that we're not just saved sinners waiting for heaven one day, 
but you call us to live in a compelling vision for the world, a different script. God, help us to be the type of people who would pursue greatness with downward mobility, pursue leadership by going to the low places. God, help us to be the type of people who would be willing to forego freedoms and accolades and spotlight in order to make other people great. We need your spirit for this. Our flesh fights against it. Our world casts a different vision. So strengthen us, God, to be a radically countercultural people for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen.